That's it for announcements. Uh, at this point, I'd like to invite uh, Steve Bill to come up. Steve Bill is our preaching intern at Grassroots, and he's been uh, doing a great job. In the last He spoke last week, and you know, a lot of us were here last week to, to hear him talk about uh, the love of God, and it was a really impacting uh, message that he'd shared with us. And this morning, I'm, I'm excited to see what he's got, got to share. So cool. welcome, Steve Bill. Thanks. Round of applause. Hey, uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so we've been doing a uh, series called uh, Uncliching the Cliché. Uh, Uncliching is not an actual word. I came up with that. But you can use it now if you like. Uh, Uncliching the Cliché. So today we're doing part two, and then next week we're going to do part three. But um, maybe, uh, maybe we'll start just by praying. Father, we give you thanks for this morning, this time that we can gather together to, um, to open your word and to look at what you have to teach us this morning. Um, I pray that uh, we'd be able to find something in this message that we can apply to our lives, that we can uh, go from here and um, live differently, uh, live and be, just to be encouraged and, and to celebrate the life you give us and to celebrate uh, this morning especially your goodness. So um, I pray that you would... Um, Give me confidence and help me to communicate clearly, Father, and you would just uh, speak to all of our hearts this morning. In your son's name I pray, amen. Well, uh, last week we began um, this series on cliché and the cliché uh, by talking about what I see as perhaps the most uh, common cliché, and you can disagree, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, that cliché is called God loves you. And, uh, and we've discussed how that just gets tossed around so much, like any cliche does. It gets tossed around so much, and as a result, it kind of loses its meaning. It loses its flavor, even. Um, and so that's kind of what the series is about. It's trying to uh, redeem the meaning of some of these cliches that we, we toss around in our church context, in our, in our culture, our Christian culture. We toss them around so much, we kind of, you know, often lose sight of what we're actually saying when we use these terms, these, these phrases. Um, and uh, last week we began by taking a look at a couple of common cliches to kind of get us in, into the, the feel of things. And you guys are really good at, uh, at you know, being able to finish the cliche. I began one, I said the first half, and then you guys finished it. So this morning we're going to just do a few more to kind of get the juices flowing a little bit. Um, but instead, instead of giving you the full, cliche, or the full half of it, I'm just going to give you one word. And I need you to complete it. Okay, are you ready? No, you're not then. Okay, we'll, we won't go yet. Are you ready? Okay, let's put the first word up there. The first word is absence. Yes, uh, I think somebody said it right. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. The next word, glitter. Oh, very good. Okay, here's one, acorn. Good. Two people have ever heard that cliche before. Uh, what about this one? Fiction. Yes. Good. Okay. Right on. Um, what, if, what if I said to you, now you're all, a lot of you, most of us in this room are, you know, well immersed in Christian culture and, and have been grown up in the church and stuff. So if I say to you, God is good and all the time, right, it's very common saying. If if you haven't heard it, well, there you have it. So next time someone comes up to you and says, God is good, say that, and they will think that you belong in the church. All right? It's a good trick. Um, 
Yeah, so this morning I want to ask us whether we actually believe this, that God is good. It's a simple question, isn't it? And we, we need to ask ourselves, do we say this because we've heard it our entire lives? And uh, maybe the saying God is good is just so familiar that we actually use the cliché-ness of it as an excuse to kind of not confront the reality of what it's saying because we have a hard time believing that. Maybe that's a question we need to ask. And so in the depths of our hearts, um, do we sometimes honestly really struggle accepting that God is good? And I want you to ask yourself that honestly this morning. Do you actually struggle believing that God is good? I do, sometimes. And I think most of us probably should, if we're honest. Because there are things in our world, and we'll get into this more, but there are situations and and experiences that we've all had and things we see in the world that are terrible. And it begs the question, how is God's goodness shown in this? And so, when I, you know, when I prepared this message, I... Um, I had a really difficult time kind of trying to focus and, and, and narrow in on one aspect of God's goodness that I really wanted to look at. And I met with Chris, and uh, you know, he had, he'd agreed that like, this topic of God's goodness is so huge. And so he said you can only really take it at one angle and just go with it from there. And so that's what I'm going to do. Now, I know I'm going to probably miss um, one aspect or two aspects or something major about God's goodness that you feel... Um, is important, and you're probably right, but forgive me for that. We're just, it's such a big topic. It's such a, you know, such a massive concept to put into our heads and, and wrap our heads around that we can only really at- attack it at like one angle. And, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. So um, let's see where my notes are at here. Oh, yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> so this is what I know about our faith. There are Lots of things I don't understand about the way the world works. But I know this as a Christian, and if you're a Christian today, I need you to ascribe to this as well. I need you to believe this too. God is good. Period. That God, in his essence, the very being of God, is fundamentally a good God. Do you believe that? Good then I'm done, and I'll go home, right on, no, Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a very simple thing, God is good, and if we can't start there, if we can't start with his basic assertion that God's, uh, his character begins with being good, then we're going to run into all sorts of problems in trying to understand our world, and in trying to understand God, and everything around us, we need to begin with this belief that God is good, and sure, sometimes we don't get it, and we might not see it always, um, but God asks us to just concede, to just believe that he's good. And the God of each of our lives, the God that made the world, the God that we, you and I believe in, is asking us very simply to just say, trust me that I'm good. I know you're not going to get it sometimes, but trust me that I'm good. And so... If we are not able to do that, if we, if we can't confidently assert that our God is a good God, beyond maybe just acknowledging it in some form of cliche or whatever, then for one, we're not believing the God of, uh, the God of the Bible, right? But more practically, if we can't accept that God is good, then when we find ourselves going through, you know, those difficult seasons in our lives, 
whatever they might look like, and for each of us it's different, I'm sure, but if we can't accept that God is good, then in those moments we're going to find that our confidence in our God will be shaky. That maybe God betrayed us, that he doesn't care for us anymore, that uh, you know, this whole idea of what I under- thought I understood God being is totally wrong. And so when we go through those storms of life or whatever situations that are challenging before us, if, if we can't accept that God is good, then in those moments, he's not going to help us out. It's, we're not going to be able to be helped out by that because we won't allow it. And, our ch- and, and the challenge then is to, in the moments that life isn't super crazy and terrible, to actually develop a belief system, develop a, something that registers in our heart that actually says that, yeah, God is good. I can believe this. I don't have a problem uh, believe in this. I might not see it, but I will say that God is good. And, and so that when those hard times come, you have a firm foundation to stand on. Because there are some intellectual and emotional and even experiential barriers that we all face. And if we don't admit those first, then we're kidding ourselves. Right? You know, um, and I. And again, I don't know what your situation is like, but it can be anything. It can be, you know, we can't have children. How is God good in that? Or, you know, maybe you've been watching the news lately, and on any given day, you look at what's going on in our world, and you say, how is God's goodness shown in that? Right? Um, it can be anything, and we're not going to belabor this point. I understand that those are, good, that those are questions that we have, and, and I think God encourages us to ask them. He's not afraid of those questions. Uh, he can handle them. And so the truth is that struggling through those questions is actually a part of our faith. It's a part of what makes us stronger as, as uh, believers in Christ. And I've asked those questions in my own life. And I'll tell you that a half-hour talk right now, talking to you about God's goodness, if you're on the other side of this, is probably not going to be sufficient in bringing you over. It might encourage you to take a few steps toward that, but um, it's not going to be sufficient. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Come out to Limelight tonight. Uh, For those who don't know, Limelight is, uh, if you're new here, you wouldn't know this, but Limelight is uh, Sunday evenings, occasionally. And uh, we... Chris takes a look at a subject that maybe was looked at in the morning, and he kind of dives into it a little bit deeper. And so, uh, and I asked Chris uh, this weekend, I said, Chris, can you maybe focus on, uh, on Sunday night, can you do a limelight that's going to kind of look at more of the intellectual side of God's goodness? You know, some of the stuff that maybe we have a hard time wrapping our head around. Uh, you know, talking about, um, and God's love as well. Last week we talked about God's love. If, if we have a hard time, why do we have a hard time accepting God's love? Why do we have a hard time buying into this um, belief that God is good? And so we're going to look at that question. Chris is going to look at that question tonight. And I want you to come out to that if this is something that's a barrier in your life, something that's a real obstacle for you. For you. But this morning I want to just begin the conversation talking about God being a good God by looking at uh, one particular story in the Bible, and that's uh, the story of Joseph, which is a great story in the Bible. Uh, Joseph is, it begins in chapter 37, and it's uh, 13 chapters long. The entire creation of the world is three chapters long, but the story of Joseph is 13 chapters long in the Bible, which is huge. And it's also kind of annoying that they didn't even mention it in the Bible, in the, the history channels of the Bible. Did, has anyone seen that, the whole series? Yeah, it was a little bit weird that they didn't mention the story of Joseph, right? 
Yeah, thank you. I'm not alone in that. I thought it was weird, too. Good. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a big part of the story of uh, the beginning. The, the, uh, it's actually a very important part to the, uh, the beginning story of the, the nation of Israel, God's people. And, uh, and I'm not going to read all 13 chapters this morning because we would be here a long time. But uh, I do want to just kind of like go through the story. I want to um, maybe summarize bits here and there, and I want to just read a little bit uh, near the end especially. And so uh, the story of Joseph um, is about this kid, Joseph. He's the youngest of 12 brothers, and these 12 brothers are going to be, uh, they're actually going to form the, the 12 tribes of Israel eventually. And so it's, uh, you know, an important family. Their father is Jacob, or also known as Israel. And so Israel is literally the father, well, Israel is the father of the nation of Israel. And so the 12 brothers make up uh, the land. And that's kind of where this story begins. Um, so he's the youngest. And there is this kind of charming naivete about Joseph that is a little bit endearing, maybe. And as you read the story, you kind of you like the guy right from the beginning. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. Some of us do, depending on how you understand it. I like the guy right from the beginning because he just doesn't get it. He goes around. I mean, he's, he's Jacob's favorite son, and he makes no bones about it. He goes around and tells his brother this all the time. And his, brother, his dad makes him this amazing technicolor coat. They should make a musical out of that one day. And uh, anyway, and, and so he goes around, and his coat is a symbol of, you know, how special Joseph is. And so he goes around, and he, he basically brags to his brothers all the time about how great it is. And then his brothers don't like that. Uh, and then they come to him. I think it's in verse, uh, chapter 37, verse, um, let's see, verses 8 through 10. He has a couple of dreams that he explains to his brothers. And basically the dreams are, yeah, so someday you guys are going to be bowing down to me. It's weird. I'm going to be your king, and you're going to be bowing down to me. Now, imagine if um, your kid brother came up to you and said, you know, started telling you that you're going to bow down to him one day. What would you do? Yeah, you'd beat him up. You might, you might give him a punch in the arm or give him a noogie or something, like, ah, get out of here. These guys didn't do that. These guys decided to kill him. And so they were out in the field one day, and Joseph came to check on them. And uh, while they saw Joseph coming from a distance, they said, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's kill this guy. Let's do it. We're getting sick and tired of this guy. Uh, and then Reuben, who's you know, the good brother, says, instead of killing him, let's just throw him in a well. That's a better idea. Yeah, let's just throw him in a well, and we'll leave him to starve to death. That's way, way more gracious. Um, and then uh, they see some traveling merchants going on their way to Egypt. And so they say, you know what? Let's make a bit of money out of this. Let's actually just send a, sell them to these merchants. And they can do whatever they want with the guy. And so that's what they do. Um, and so right in the first few scenes, we see, we see how Joseph's life is great. It starts off being, you know, Jacob's favorite. He gets all this special treatment. Everything is great. And then he's completely betrayed by his own flesh and blood. And he's sold to these merchants, and, and those merchants will eventually sell him into slavery. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going on in Joseph's mind, at least not yet, but he's human. And so I'm sure there were fears and there were uncertainties and, and there were questions about, why would you allow me to do this, God? Or why would you allow this to happen to me, right? Like, that stuff is natural. Um, 
And yet he maintains his faithfulness to God. And the next turn in the story, we see Joseph being purchased by um, Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was the head of the army in Egypt, I think. He was kind of a big deal in Egypt. And, uh, and the Bible says that uh, in verse 39, verse, chapter 39, verse 2 says, The Lord is with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So Joseph does well at everything he puts his mind to, the Bible says. Eventually, he's in charge of Potiphar's entire household. Things are going pretty good. At this point, Joseph's doing well. And what was a pretty terrible situation had actually become a pretty good situation. You've got to you know, picture him thinking, well, you know, it's not my ideal life. I'd rather be back in the land of Canaan with my family. But eh, if I've got to be a slave, this is probably the way to go. You're, in, you know, you're living in uh, probably a really nice home. You're the head of the, uh, all the servants, and so you're being treated fairly good. Um, not bad. Life is going okay. I can handle this. Until the next turn. And so then, what happens is, well, first of all, Joseph's a pretty good-looking guy. He's strong, and they probably didn't wear shirts all the time in those days. So he probably went around just like muscle ripped. And Potiphar's wife notices this. Of course she does. And, uh, and so what she says, first of all, she tries to seduce the guy and wants him to sleep with him. And, and this is what he says, and this is where things start to get ugly. He says this in chapter uh, 39, verse 7, and we can put that on the screen. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, like she was relentless, she really wanted to get in this guy's pants. Can I say that here? (laughs) I just did. She really wanted to get with this guy, but he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. How could I do such a wicked thing against, uh, a wicked thing and sin against God? That's how he turns it on her. So, think about that. Joseph had been left for dead by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. You know, he is a servant. Yeah, he's working his tail off under Potiphar. And yet he never turns his back on God. And when he's actually pressured, he says, how could I sin against God? So that's the main focus in his life still. He could have, he could have said, you know, well, God's clearly not what I thought he was. You know, God is obviously not looking out for me the way I first thought he was. Why am I subjected to so much agony in life? It seems pretty unfair. The people around me don't seem to be getting this treatment. Why is that that I've gotten, you know, such a poor hand dealt to me? I might as well sleep with the, one, with the woman. He could have done that. But fortunately, he didn't. And yet, even though he didn't, he still gets into trouble. Because the next turn that we see is that um, over and over again, she keeps trying to sleep with him, and then uh, eventually she accuses him because he's so resistant, he, or so, he resists her so much, eventually, she eventually accuses him of trying to rape her. And he gets a piece of her cloth or whatever, and he shows it to uh, her husband. And so what does her husband do? He's angry. He's like, I thought I trusted you all these years, and you go around and you're doing this, come on. Um, and because of that, you're going to prison. And so now he's in prison for years and years and years. So he's or probably years and years. The Bible doesn't say years and years, but we can assume that it wasn't, you know, a short couple of days sentence. It was a long time in jail, right? So then we think, oh, things are terrible. 
But then what happens? Well, then the cupbearer and the baker, who are also in jail because they're crazy, um, they have these dreams and they want to be, have them interpreted. Well, Joseph is blessed by God. And so Joseph has the ability to take those dreams and tell them what they mean. And so the baker, well, he's going to die. That's fine. That wasn't too happy. But the cupbearer, he says, you're going to be restored in three days, and you're going to go back to Pharaoh, and you're going to resume your position. But when you do, can you please tell Pharaoh about me? And he goes, Joseph, I got this, buddy. I will do that for you. And so then he doesn't. He completely forgets about Joseph for two more years. Joseph is rotting in prison for two more years. Now, he wasn't exactly rotting. He'd worked hard in prison, and he you know, basically been co- become uh, in charge of the entire prison as well, which is kind of what he does with his, with his character. Um, and so it's not all bad, but he's still in prison, and he wants to get free because he's not supposed to be there. He didn't actually attempt to rape anyone. It's, it's, he's wrongfully imprisoned. Um, and so again, we see another turn. Pharaoh has a dream, and Pharaoh has this dream, and he says, um, I can't understand it. Is there anyone here who can interpret it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's this guy in jail right now who has the ability to interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh calls on him, and he interprets the dream, and most of us know this story. There's seven years of famine followed by seven years of, of uh, prosperity, and so Joseph says you need to prepare for those seven, or sorry, the other way around. Seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine, and Joseph says you need to prepare for those seven years of, of uh, famine right now. Pharaoh likes what he hears. He likes Joseph's character. He likes everything he sees about Joseph. So he says, you know what, buddy? You're no longer in jail. In fact, I'm going to make you second in charge of the entire country of Egypt. So now he is gone from being a prisoner to being in charge of all of Egypt. The, the, The only one with more power than him is Pharaoh. So talk about turn after turn after turn after turn in this guy's life. And, and now he is kind of arrived. He's made it, right? And so then what happens? Well, we have a famine that eventually comes, and it, it hits the land of Canaan as well. And so Jacob tells his 12 sons, he says, go to Egypt and see if you can get some wheat before we all die, or some grain before we all die, because we're going to starve. And so they head off to Egypt. And... Um, the next scene, we have them bowing before Joseph, very, very much like the dream that he had at the beginning of the story, in which his brothers would bow down. Well, that's actually taking place now. And they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And so, a bunch of drama unfolds, blah, 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 blah. The whole family, Jacob's family, Jacob and the brothers, all come into uh, the land of Egypt. They settle down. They are given great land to live on and to, you know, do their thing and prosper. And so they do, and it's a great story. And then uh, Jacob dies. And so here we are now that we're in chapter 50 of Genesis. And this is where I want to <laughs> read. So we're going to start at verse 15. Chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Which is a lie. He didn't, but this is what they said. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins and servants of the God of your father. Right. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Verse 19 says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. 
Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. And that's kind of how the story ends. Well, he dies eventually, but that's how the story ends. Now think back to the beginning of this story. The brothers are envious. They're jealous. They're full of, you know, bad thoughts towards, towards Joseph. And, and so they decide to sell him to these merchants. Their intentions were evil from the outset. And all along Joseph's life, we see bad turn followed by good turn followed by bad turn. Right? He gets sold into slavery. He becomes in charge of Potiphar's household. Right? And then he gets accused of rape and he's thrown in jail. But then he becomes, uh, he interprets some dreams and he's, oh, we're going to get out of here. Oh, two more years in jail, another throwback. And then eventually he's free and life actually does get better. And, and um, in the end, it does work out. The entire story of Joseph was in God's hands from the outset. And God's goodness was not shown just in the times of prosperity as he looked back on it, but he could see his hand of goodness throughout everything, even though in the moment he didn't understand that. I met Janet. Ron and I met Janet while we lived in the Bahamas. And um, Janet, uh, we lived in the Bahamas a couple years ago, and, and so we met her probably in 2005. And Janet is a really special lady. She has kind of a depth of her character and her faith that I've seen in very few people. She was in her early 40s, and she would have what many would say a really amazing life. She was in her early 40s. She had a loving husband. She had a couple kids, and she lived in the Bahamas. So that also was a nice perk. Um, You know, big house, big pool, very wealthy. She had it all going. And um, her husband and her uh, brother-in-law, her husband's brother, um, they needed to do some kind of trip to North Carolina. I can't remember what it was for. It was like some business trip or something. And they're only going to be gone a few days. And so they said, uh, you know, um, we're going to be gone, whatever. And their, their oldest daughter, Caitlin, who was, I think, 13 or 14 at the time, said, Dad, can I come with? And so since they're only going to be gone a few days, they said, sure, why not? And so they flew to um, Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, they, were on a, they were to take a commuter plane to this smaller community. And there was a 19-seater with two pilots. And the plane literally went up and then came crashing down into a hangar, killing all 21 people on board, including Janet's husband, her daughter, and her brother-in-law. That was in 2005, I think. So we met her about two years after that. No, that was in two, I can't remember what the year was. It was a couple years ago. We met her like two years after that had taken place. And um, she was still kind of at that stage figuring out life and trying to like rebuild uh, where she, you know, rebuild her life, and make sense of it all. Uh, eventually, her and her daughter decided to, to move to South Carolina. And here's what they did there. They started a ministry called See Grace at Work. Her daughter's name was Caitlin Grace. And uh, so they started this ministry called Caitlin Grace, or See Grace at Work, with another family who had lost a daughter in that same plane crash, whose middle name was also Grace. And so See Grace at Work came out of this. And this is basically, they bought, some, they bought a huge amount of property uh, in the mountains of South Carolina, North Carolina, I can't remember, somewhere down there. And it's beautiful. I've seen pictures of it, and it's just like this incredible place. And what it is, is like a, a sanctuary for 
um, missionaries and pastors and folks who are in ministry, and they basically just serve them for a week at a time. So Chris, if you ever want a break, I can hook you up. You can go down there with Shawnee and just take a break there for a week, and they will just minister to you. So it's like a ministry to those who are in ministry. It's a really simple concept, beautiful home, beautiful property. And so that's what they do. And that came out of this tragedy. Her daughter, Caitlin, had wanted to be a phys ed teacher. And so um, she came back, they came back to the Bahamas. Obviously, their family's there, so they still visit often. And they wanted to do something at the school that we taught at. They wanted to leave sort of a legacy or something that we would remember Caitlin through. And so uh, they decided to build a gymnasium. And, um, and so uh, they did this. And this is the picture of the gymnasium here. It's amazing. But we were at the, um, the groundbreaking ceremony for this. And, uh, and I don't remember everything that Jana said, but I remember one thing that, was, that I hope will always stick with me. And this is what she said. She said, you know, amongst, amidst tears and just uh, really heartfelt um, kind of thank you to God and thank you to the community for all the support and everything, she said this, if God were to tell me today, Janet, I can give you back your husband and your daughter and your life but it would require you to go back to being who you were before any of this took place. I would tell God, no thank you. That was, I want to say, three years after the accident took place. Three years after the accident took place, this is the woman who's able to look at her life and her situation and say, you know what, if God were to give it all back to me and say that I had to be who I was before then, I wouldn't do it. And so this is the Caitlin Memorial Gym, and you can imagine uh, we played a lot of basketball there, and it was epic. It was just fantastic. Good memories. Okay, next slide. <laughs> Janet is a special woman, and, and, and like Joseph, she understood God's goodness was not tied to her circumstance. And I'm sure there were questions, and there were doubts, and there were, you know, frustrations and anger along the way. In fact, I, I sat with her, and we cried together, but a lot of those things. And so, I know there's, there are those things, and yet, the truth is, oh, sorry, and yet, she was able to see God's goodness all of, in all of that. But let me ask you, how is God's goodness understood in these kind of circumstances? And I mean, in the tragedy of a plane crash. And I think the answer is, it's not. Plane crashes do not reflect the goodness of God. Being sold into slavery by your brothers and then being accused of rape, that does not scream God is good. And if you think it does, then you have a really warped view of what good is, because that's not good, right? That stuff's not good. But where I think the goodness of God is displayed, and this is what's on the screen, is in God's ability to take these terrible and awful situations in our lives and then to redeem them, to bring good life-saving purposes out of the worst stuff that happens to us and in our world. And a God that can do that is deserving to be called a good God. A God who can take our crappy situations, all the junk that we deal with, and actually make that something beautiful, something good. What Joseph says, saving many lives, he says in, verse, or in, in chapter 50. right? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good so that I can save many lives. What happens to us that sucks, God can take and turn into really good things so that he can save many lives, so that we can work towards saving many lives. 
you're not God, and neither am I. And as such, we don't have the God's, God's eye perspective on, on our lives. We have our very self-focused perspective. And so, God's asking us in these situations in our lives to, to just trust Him. Um, to trust that He is good and that He will use our circumstances over and over and over again to help bring restoration and healing into this world. He recognizes they're not good. He's not blind to that. He knows, and I'm sure his heart breaks over those things. But he is committed to redeeming even the worst things that happen to us, the worst experiences that we can imagine. And I look at at other people's tragedies, um, situations in which God's goodness maybe is not you know, immediately apparent. The more I've encountered this in others and, and listening to their stories, the more I'm convinced that God's goodness isn't always displayed within the situation itself, but rather how he is able to redeem that situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which is kind of funny because if you think about it, it's hearing the testimony of suffering and, and like hardships and, you know, bad things and how you know, what comes on the other side of that is hearing those kind of testimonies that really has turned me on to this idea that God is good rather than hearing necessarily the stories of people's lives that are just perfect. I don't listen to someone's life who's, you know, never experienced any tragedy or, or whatever, and I don't necessarily say, wow, that guy, you know, that, that means God is really good. He is. I'm not denying that. But I don't actually think that. But when I hear people's stories like this, when I hear Janet's story, I like turn around and be like, man, maybe I need to rethink how I understand God. Good. Um, yeah, and there are examples all around us. I think of guys like uh, R.A. Dickey, who we talk about often in this church because he's a J. And, <laughs> and that's great. You know, uh, you know, the starting picture on the J's. This guy was sexually abused when he was eight years old. That's not a reflection of God's goodness. That is a reflection of evil and a reflection of a broken world, right? And yet, he became a professional athlete and he uses that platform now as a means of, of, of communicating um, or of um, standing for all sorts of organizations, not least of which are, uh, you know, Teen Challenge in India, uh, where they're involved with rescuing um, human trafficking. And so he uses his position as kind of an athlete, or a celebrity athlete to do that, and it came, it began, as a youth who was sexually abused. He didn't let that define him. He still trusted in God's goodness growing up, and he, and he um, eventually was, was able to you know, use, that, use that experience as a good, he, bringing healing to other people. Or uh, guys like Brennan Manning, and I shared a quote from him last week and talked about how much, how much of an influence he's had on my life and just the way that he's able to write. And, and, and communicate about God's love. Well, his life, and he died on Friday, by the way. That was kind of weird, hey? Uh, anyway, he, um, he, yeah, grew up being abused. He was a victim of abuse. He was a self-abuser all his life. He was never able to conquer the bottle. But yet, he seemed to be able to funnel that, those experiences into an ability to just communicate and save many lives through his written word to communicate, to tell others about God's love in a, in a very profound way. And so many millions of people have been in touch as a result of that. Or uh, my favorite author, Donald Miller. Here's a guy who 
you know, has made quite a life of, for himself as a writer, but he began, uh, his dad abandoned him when he was three years old. And that has always plagued him. It's always been this hole in his life. And so he's gone through his life, and then when he became an adult, he said, you know what, I want to start something that's going to impact other people's lives or other kids. Because I grew up without a father, but I don't think it's a fair, I don't think it's a good thing. So he started a project called The Mentoring Project. And now he sets up adult men with young kids as mentors all around, all around the state. Thousands of kids are being uh, mentored by father figures, sort of like the, the big brothers, big sisters thing, right? So he does that, and that came out of the situation of, that he experienced as a three-year-old having his father walk out on him, which was not a reflection of God's goodness, but God was able to redeem that moment, redeem that story. And I'm sure you can think of so many other stories in your own life and, and others as well, that maybe are popping in your head right now, in which bad situations, situations that are the furthest thing from God's goodness, somehow, miraculously, are redeemed later on. Um, we do this study with another couple once a week, and the focus of the study is to help us kind of live a better story with our lives, uh, being intentional about living with purpose. And as the author even says, saving many lives, he's quoting Joseph as well. Um, it's supposed to be an eight-week study, and I think we're about halfway through this thing now, and we started before Christmas. So you can kind of see how far we get each week. It's not very far, but that's okay. There's no rush to get through it, and it's just it's solid material that we love to just you know, discuss and, and talk about, and it's really good. Um, anyway, one of the exercises in the story is to kind of reflect on your life and to um, basically write down all the different major life turns that you've experienced. So the positive and the negative. And so um, if you're 30 years old, there's probably about 15 to 18 kind of life turns. And those life turns can be something like, um, you know, let's say uh, you're, in element, you're in elementary school and a teacher came up to you and said, I really like what you wrote here. You have a real gift of writing. And that just stuck with you for years and years. And then you became a, you know, a journalist or a writer later on in life. Or um, maybe, uh, maybe it was having kids or getting married. Those kind of things can tend to be uh, you know, somewhat significant in your life. And so uh, maybe that was a, a major life turn. But then there's also negative turns as well that we've all experienced. And so uh, maybe you fell into the wrong crowd in high school, and then that caused you to go down a certain path that, you know, you made all sorts of bad decisions. Or, or maybe your parents were divorced at a young age, and that definitely, like, impacted you. So whatever those life turns are in your life that um, have an impact as to who you are today and basically have caused, you know, where you're going in your life have, have all, you know, uh, contributed toward making that you. So there's about 15 to 18. And then, so that in itself was a fantastic exercise, and that took like a month for us to get through because each week we just keep going back to that. It was really good. But then the next exercise was what was very interesting. The next exercise was to take those negative things in your life, the negative turns that you've experienced, no matter how bad they were, no matter what those kind of experiences were, to take those and then to find a redeeming purpose in them. So, to look back, and this obviously required a lot of introspection, a lot of praying, a lot of kind of grappling with difficult things, and being able to just come to the realization that even in those bad moments in my life, those terrible things that have happened, God was able to actually redeem them. That was a powerful exercise. Because you can look back on that, and as we did, and we, did, we all did this, and, you know, sometimes, I'll be honest, sometimes the redemptive purpose of a particular bad turn in our life maybe didn't seem 
Like it was, it really balanced out. But that's not up for us to know, right? That's not up for us to decide. And so we would go through this and we would um, reckon, we look at all these negative terms and we would actually be able to find a redemptive purpose in everything bad that has happened to us. Everything's that, everything bad that is, everything that's been significantly bad that has impacted who we've become, we've been able to find some redemptive purpose in that. Which is every te- it's a testimony of God's goodness to us, isn't it? Right? Um, yeah, and, and so Joseph couldn't see anything good about being sold into slavery and being accused of rape. And Janet couldn't see anything good about her family um, dying in a plane crash. Because the truth is, those weren't good things. That didn't show God's goodness. That, that showed more a broken world and a world that is in need of being healed. Right? That, that's what that shows. And yet, looking back, they're able to see God's goodness throughout this and turn, it in, and turn their situations into something that is good and redeemable. To the point where Janet is able to say that she would rather not go back to the life that was if it meant losing the depth of relationship that she had with her God. That's pretty powerful. I, I don't know. That's pretty powerful to me. Um, I hope it is to you. And I want to share just one more story this morning, or one more example of uh, seeing God's goodness in amidst the uh, challenging situations that we face. And this story maybe hits home a bit harder because it comes from within our own church family. If you've been uh, coming to this church for any length of time, you'll know that we pray regularly for Samuel Watley. Samuel was, is, or was seven years old when he was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor in his head. That was last August. So you can imagine that the last eight to nine months for this family have been, I don't know what words can even describe that, just incredibly challenging, right? Excruciatingly difficult. And if you've been following them on Facebook, and I encourage you uh, to do a search for Samuel's Soldier, and if you haven't yet, and, and follow them so you can read their blog, their, uh, their notes and their updates and stuff like that. It's, I mean, it's an encouraging, incredibly inspiring uh, journey that they've been on. Um, and so I was, as I was thinking about preparing this message the other day and really trying to like, you know, hone in on what I wanted to say, I was laying awake in bed and uh, Samuel just kept popping in my head. So I thought, I'm going to ask Carolyn and Ryan, who are down there in Toronto right now, I think, I don't know if Ryan is, but Carolyn's down there in Toronto right now, um, and they're actually on their last treatment of chemotherapy. They've been going through treatment after treatment after treatment, trying to get this brain tumor. And, and watching their son day in and day out and just loving on him as much as they could. And so I said, I thought, <clears throat> I'm going to contact them and I'm going to see what they have to say about God's goodness. Because if anyone's going to have insight into this, it's going to be someone who's in the midst of tragedy right now, right? And so Carolyn provided a response both from a personal and a philosophical one. And I'm, I'm going to, after the service, I'll go home and I'll, and I'll copy and paste the, uh, the, her full response into the, our Facebook group because it's really worth reading and paying attention to. And I want you to, to actually, you know, I encourage you to go home and, and to just take a look at what she has to say in full. And so this morning I just want to read a little bit of what she said uh, regarding her, her personal perspective on this. Um, and so if we can put that on the screen. This is what she wrote. 
Our family was obviously devastated by the news that Samuel had a high-risk, inoperable, malignant brain tumor. Yet, I can honestly say that throughout each moment of confusion and pain, none of us seriously questioned God's goodness. If anything, we drew strength and comfort from it, though not in any kind of catchphrase way, sort of way. I believe the reason for this is that the goodness of God is one of the roots of God's nature that entwines with others to form the foundation of our family's faith. This root has been wrestled with, studied in Scripture, challenged, and lived out in the day-to-day life of our family. Consistently, God's goodness is revealed to us to be reliable and steadfast. It is an aspect of God and faith that we talk about, reflect on, pray through, and struggle with each time we face challenges, big and small. Over their lifetimes, our kids have heard of and seen God reveal his goodness, even in the darkest of circumstances, in both practical and mysteriously spiritual ways. Another one. Our kids know that we don't expect blind acquiescence to God's goodness in towing the family line. Rather, it is a living, breathing reality in our family life, and it, is naturally, and it naturally continues to be so in the midst of this current crisis. I think that when we hear that, excuse me, and I think when we understand the context in which this is written from, um, it leaves an impact far greater than anything Chris or I could say from the stage. And so I think let's, let's leave it at that and let's, uh, let's close in prayer. God, I ask that we would have the kind of faith that Carolyn and, and her family um, have demonstrated. That we would recognize that your goodness, sorry, that we are deeply committed to your goodness, that we are, some, we believe in your goodness in far more than a cliche level, Father, that it is something that is in us and, Lord, that we can just grab a hold of. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would Touch those hearts in this room that um, are really struggling, that are going through something hard right now, and that it's hard to see your goodness in, Father. I pray that you would encourage them where they're at right now, where they're at, Lord. Just give them an assurance that you are good. And that even though they might not get the situation, Lord, that you will redeem it in some way, shape, or form. Because that's how you are good. And I ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so like, ev- like we do every week, uh, we conclude our morning w- with, <clears throat> with the bread and the cup. And this is uh, something that Jesus, uh, a practice that Jesus left to his disciples to, to do on a regular basis in remembrance of him. Let's read this before we, we partake in communion together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So... Um, if you want to just come to the front, take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup.
and say thank you to God for, for everything he's done for you and uh, to remember him until he comes again. And if for any reason uh, you don't feel like taking part in this this morning, I just feel free to sit in your seats and uh, just reflect as we finish off with one more song. You're invited to the table.